Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. Welcome to another episode of The Mouthy IP. Today, we're going to talk about sterilization failures. Today, we have uh, many of our normal cast. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Richard Hankins. We have Sarah Stream. We have Kate Tyner. Plus, we have a special guest. Jody. would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you. My name is Jody Siebold. I am a nurse by training. I'm an infection preventionist with the ICAP team, and I'm happy to be here today. Thank you. ICAP is the Infection Control Assessment Promotion Program. It is funded through the state and the CDC to really help um, facilities, inpatient, outpatient, and kind of what I would consider everything in between that's related to healthcare. Most people assume that healthcare is just inpatient, like acute care hospitals, but ICAP has really kind of gone into places that you would have never thought that infection prevention would affect and it would have an importance on the health and safety of not only patients that they take care of, but also the staff that actually work at these facilities too. Thank you, Dan, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, Jody, for joining us. I just want to play the question that we got that is related to our last episode. And if you haven't heard our last episode, it was on debunking the myth that uh, disease outbreaks don't happen in dental facilities. And we got a follow-up question. So here is the audio from that question. Hi, I was able to listen to the last episode on infectious disease outbreaks, and I was curious about how instrument sterilization process could play into that. We want to thank our caller for calling in with this question for us today. And remind everybody out there that if you have questions, feel free to call us and we will always use your question anonymously and with permission. So we will talk about instrument sterilization with our friend Jody Siebold. Just so everybody out there is aware, Jody is kind of our sterilization subject matter expert for the team. So she's got a lot of experience. Um, both boots on the ground and a lot of um, IP training and helping facilities understand sterilization processes. So we brought her on to help answer our question for the day. Thank you. That was um, one of the things that I didn't say when I introduced myself is um, my first job out of nursing school was working in the operating room. Um, and that was, it was kind of one of those unique things where not a lot of new graduates um, were provided the opportunity to start working in the operating room because when you think about um, nursing education, none of that was in our undergraduate education whatsoever. We maybe had an observation day where we got to follow patient through the whole admission, um, preoperative, intraoperative, where that actual procedure is going on, and then postoperative, and then we got to go home and, you know, it's kind of that mystical place behind the red line where you had to wear these you know, green scrubs and all this other PPE that you didn't quite understand. And 
you know, it's, it was a very much a learning experience um, and a great opportunity. You know, there was, it's most people when they go into the operating room where I grew up in the operating room, their orientation was from six to eight months, just because in the context of not only did we learn how to circulate in the circulating nurse role, we actually learned how to function as a surgical technologist um, within the state of Nebraska, although we don't have this role, we learned how to first assist some private practice surgeons too. Um, I worked as a CNA until I took my boards and passed my boards, so I had to scrub in and hold retractors. So they gave me a unique perspective on the whole experience before I actually had to jump in officially and function as a registered nurse. So and Jody, like when you consider the rest of us on the call, your experience in the operating room is probably most parallel to dental than besides Sarah on the call, because I mean, like similarly working in an operative bay, working closely beside, you know, a practitioner or a surgeon, handing instruments, um, managing the environment after the case is over your experience, like a person might not think about it off the top of their head, but your experience in the OR is probably very similar to what people see in a dental operatory. Yes, because part of our orientation was we had to go down and actually clean the instruments, prepare them for sterilization. So we got the whole picture. And that really, as, as a nurse, gave us a really good perspective in the context of, like, if I was circulating and I was hearing what was being said up at the sterile field, I knew exactly where they were, what they were doing, and what the surgical technologist or first assistant was going to anticipate. So if they were asking for multiple sutures or, you know, this type of instrument, that led to me that, oh, okay, are we having an issue here or are we, um, you know, resecting something? So, and then you start to learn to listen to even the anesthesia provider in the context of, you know, if they're giving another dose of, um, paralytic medication that's going to add another half hour 45 minutes to the procedure or when they start saying okay you're asking for this type of suture that cues you on of this is when we're at the end of the procedure we're going to start closing and now I have to do x y and z in order to get ready for you know like counts and all that kind of stuff to make sure we didn't have any retained items in the body cavities or anything else so well thankfully yeah. in dentistry we don't often leave retained items in people. <laughs> Although I've seen, you know, there's been some um, hacks that, you know, I've, I've helped in some dental procedures of circulating some, some procedures. Um, those procedures were done in the context of a hospital because mostly the patients could not handle sitting in the dental chair for that long. So we put them under general anesthesia. And I've seen stuff left in the back of the throat. Well, thankfully yeah. in dentistry, we don't often leave retained items in people. <laughs> Although I've seen, you know, there's been some um, hacks that, you know, I've, I've helped in some dental procedures of circulating some, some procedures. Um, those procedures were done in the context of a hospital because mostly the patients could not handle sitting in the dental chair for that long. So we put them under general anesthesia. And I've seen stuff left in the back of the throat, you know, thank goodness they oh, were wow. intubated. Yeah. Um, so, you know, cotton balls, you know, stuff that's not radio opaque, you know, those things that you learn to count, even if 
it's not officially in a kiln. So that they have taken a mental picture of what goes in must come out unless it's meant to be left in. One of the things you talked about, Jody, um, the importance of orienting to understand sterilization. And I think part of that, I think, alludes to the idea of how you care for the instruments upstairs during the procedure definitely impacts how they're cleaned downstairs, right? And so um, from that, like, you know, for example, pretreatment of instruments, could you comment on the importance of pretreating instruments or even receiving instruments that had debris on them? Yeah, so one of the things when I was um, learning how to scrub is we always had sterile water on our backfield. And we, you know, one of the things that was always ingrained into my brain is you don't ever hand a surgeon a dirty instrument. So you always had like a ray tech or some sort of radiopaque gauze that was soaked in sterile saline that you wipe the instrument off. And so that was my, that was my context. Over the years, I have learned that the importance of um, pre-cleaning has to do more with your capacity to actually remove that gross debris that may be, um, may incidentally dry on that instrument, or like if you have some sort of instrument that, um, you know, crunches bone out or, you know, grabs tissue and it gets stuck in between the jaws or anything else like that, some kind of round jewel or anything, um, to actually clean that out because even though they are soaked, instruments are soaked, um, and they go through the whole cleaning process, some of that debris may be left behind that we don't see. So now we're talking about the micro aspect of it. And one of the things that I've learned over time is cleaning and disinfection are two different things. You know, most people always think of cleaning is, it's only when you see visible debris and soil. And it, that's true for the most part, but you can't disinfect something unless you clean it first. So cleaning at the point of use is very important, especially with sterile, um, not sterile, but instruments when it goes down to um, decontamination and sterile processing, some people call it central supply, is that pre-cleaning is very important because it all depends on how big your facility is. Those instruments may sit there for half hour, 45 minutes before they go into a pre-enzymatic you know, pre soak and that may dry on it. So it makes it very difficult for those individuals down in cell processing to get that built up of biofilm off. And even if they can't see it, there's always microscopic stuff that's left behind. So it starts from the point of use, if I can circle back, and it goes all the way through the whole sterilization decontamination process of recognizing where those unique um, opportunities are for tissue and pathogens to kind of harbor and live and all that kind of stuff. And then the other thing too is, does that instrument break it down into multiple components? And knowing how to break that down appropriately and um, cleaning each piece appropriately. You know, it either you're manually doing it, you're taking it like a brush, what I consider like a toothbrush, but it's a little bit different. Um, to manually clean it, does it go through the ultrasonic? So there's several different things that go into the entire process that, you know, you learn over time. And um, I always tell myself, if I had known what I 
know now and go back 20 years from now and it was just kind of like the things that I did then that's that's the knowledge that we had then but you know it's always reflective practice it's kind of like oh that would that wasn't right but that's what we knew at that time or that's what I was taught yeah I have a question Uh, Uh as you're talking about seeing debris on instruments is this uh seeing debris on instruments that are supposed to be cleaned and sterilized and you open them up for the first time and oh there's debris or is this debris on something that had been used in a procedure and then the surgeon set it down and they're using some other tool and so before you hand that tool back to the surgeon you're like oh i should get said debris off of it before I hand it back to you. Yeah. So one of the things during the procedure is, you know, I was taught to clean the debris off as much as possible because you, you don't want those fragments, even though it's their own tissue going back in because your body may encapsulate it in some funky way and treat it as a foreign object. Um, so during the procedure, it's very important to just clean it because depending on your procedure, that instrument may sit on your sterile back table or on your Mayo stand for 20, 30 minutes. And if you think of, you know, the air exchanges and the airflow, it could easily dry up and pressed over really quick. And if you're using like little suction tips that are reusable, you know, if you're not flushing those out, those may get clogged. So then you have to stop the procedure, try to unclog it, and then you know, you're working on that. And then the unintended effect is you have longer anesthesia time, right? So that's detrimental to the patient. So there's multiple things that you look at in the context of, oh, it's just flushing something out or wiping something off. And if I don't do that, it may cause issues actually during the case. Now, at the end of the case, if I don't clean it off, after I'm done using it, that may cause problems down in sterile processing. Or if I'm actually doing it in a smaller facility, I may be the one that actually has to clean it off or is in charge of the decontamination of used instruments. And if there's three or four instrument pans sitting there from you know a day's work, how long has that been dried up? And it makes it very difficult to get that bio burden off of those instruments. And it could cause pitting on some of your stainless steel instruments too. So yes, we're talking about point of use cleaning, getting the debris off, and then actually getting the debris off for the whole decontamination and sterilization process. I think something that as an IP that I I would uh, try to paint the picture for people who are sterilizing things is, you know, we use high heat steam to sterilize things. And I think it's easy in your mind to kind of let go of it. And it's kind of magical, right? Like I put it in the box, it gets very hot, it comes out clean. And I think something that I would like to kind of like, you know, change the tune on is you think about like when you're making cookies or muffins, right? If you have little bits of things on your muffin pan, before it goes in, it is going to get cooked onto the metal. It'll be very hard to get off. So I think that um, both the the intra procedure and keeping, I think that the point you make about the very fine tips, Jody, is is very well recognized issue in dentistry, right? Those mm-hmm. air water syringes becoming clogged and clogged is a physical manifestation of a problem. But what we think about from a micro perspective of what's happening is what yuck is in there that's causing that, that we don't want going back into a person's mouth. Um, But I think like in your mind and you think about when you train other people in your practice, you know, a little bit of work up front 
saves hours in the, you know, after sterilization when we kind of bake things on. You know, one of the, the we, we've talked about a number of, of items here, and that was all fascinating, Jody, actually, uh, hearing all of that. It, it We're talking about cleaning, and then we're talking about sterilization. Is it either, you know, you're, you're either sterilized or you're not, um, as far as the equipment goes? And how does that play a role in dentistry uh, with the multitude of different procedures uh, which items need to be sterilized versus which items need to be cleaned? You know, it's interesting that you that you say that, Dan. Um, as an IP, you know, I've, I've encountered several things in the context of the approach and the mental attitude of, well, you know, when you go to a restaurant, they don't sterilize your knife, fork, and spoon right? It's going in your mouth. So this is just a clean procedure that we're working with. And I understand that logic and that rationale, but we're talking about healthcare versus going to a restaurant. I mean, they're two totally different things. When I go to the dentist or when I go into any kind of healthcare facility, I'm expecting kind of the best of the best. Does it meet the gold standard? And that even comes down to um, hand hygiene, watching, watching the people in hand hygiene, you know, and thinking of it in the context of spalding criteria. You know, is it touching intact skin, non-intact skin? Is it mucous membrane? So when you talk about mucous membranes, which is dentistry, right? You're talking about the minimum is high level disinfection or cold sterilization. I think it's called mm -hmm. in dentistry. Um, that's minimum, preferably sterilization, because you never know what kind of pathogens live where, you know, you have your common commensals, your normal pathogens that live in certain areas of your body, and you can easily introduce pathogens from other parts of your body that are not intended to be there. And that's when you start getting into problems. So and it also depends on the procedure. Right, yeah. Sarah and Jody, like I could imagine when I go to the dentist and they're taking an x-ray in my mouth and that's only touching the inside of my cheek, my mucous membrane, um, mm -hmm. and I don't have cut skin in my mouth, that's a, that will require like different level of disinfection, more like what you're talking about, like more, more of a food type disinfection, you know, like mm -hmm. a fork. But when you're cutting my gums to do a surgical procedure, there are no bacteria that are meant to live in my gum tissue, right? That's sterile tissue. And if it's sterile tissue, then we have to use sterile instruments to go in. And that's when you get to the level of sterilizing your instruments, right? Like those tissues that have blood in them, et cetera, where we would not expect to find pathogens. Or sometimes really, you, get, oh, sorry, un, you get unintended tissue damage, even in, in what I would consider basic cleaning, right? So if you accidentally slip, if you accidentally do something and hit a gun and cut it, so there you go. So yes, we say high level disinfection is the minimum. I would push it to say sterilization should be the kind of gold standard because you never know what's gonna happen. And then sometimes I'm sure Sarah, you've experienced is when you get in there, you're just like, whoa, what, what's that? You know, when you flip somebody's tongue up or have them, you know, retract their gums or retract their cheek on the left side and the right side was perfectly fine, but you get to the other side and you're like, okay, here we go, 
you know, yeah, you have that was going to be ulceration or anything else like that. That was going to be um, one of the points I was going to bring up. You know, you'd said with procedures, we get in there and, you know, we could potentially, you know, cut the gum tissue to do a surgical procedure or whatever. But when we look at dentistry and some of the diseases that go along with that, even just mild gingivitis, I have seen people that you just touch their gum tissue with your finger and it's bleeding just because they have gingivitis, that tissue is inflamed and it's not happy. And even though you're not doing anything that's meant to be invasive, you still have that direct line to their bloodstream, right? Mm -hmm. Because just because of the condition of that tissue. I think so I'm sure you touch somebody's gums and an abscess just, just boom, just ruptured. And you're just yeah. like, didn't know that was there. Yep. Because suction, then when grab the suction. <laughs> yeah, grab the suction. So then when we're talking about even preparing for cases, you know, when you open your your scale instruments and you're preparing for that, um, you know, I've I've had several instances where I can remember, you know you always check your filters, you always check your external packages, you always look for your chemical indicators, right? So that is your responsibility as you're setting up and getting ready for that case. Now, sir, you know, in dentistry, it's a little bit different because you're bringing the patient back. And it's been my experience where, you know, where they're opening the stuff kind of on your stand as they're getting ready for the case, which is totally fine. You know, there's multiple ways to approach the same thing. But those indicators are still what you're looking for. Even if your patient's right there sitting in the chair and you're still getting ready, but those indicators are what you're looking for. And I've experienced where, um, you know, you have like your wet pack or if you have like a peel pack that kind of has what I would say water damage. So if I set like my coffee cup or if I spilled something on a piece of paper, you know, how it kind of gets that funky wrinkle to it. And you're just like, well, did this get wet? during sterilization or after sterilization, or do I have a wet pack issue where I've opened um, sterile instruments to where um, I found ballpoint pens, I found hair, I found bone fragments, um, you know, so there's a multitude of things. Um, and that's been an instance where I worked at another institution where you're sending it down to a different department. Um, but if you have somebody you know, if you're in a smaller facility and you didn't pack those instruments, but you know, have somebody else when your coworkers doing it, you know, if they didn't have the right PPE on, or if they have a beard, you know, you're, you're constantly sloughing. So, you know, I, I've found stuff and I've, I've had um, bone fragments. I've been called as an IP um, in the context of a circulating nurse saying, you know, we found bone fragments in this dental set the dentist still wants to use it, but I won't let them. So it's kind of this little tension in the OR. So what do they do? They call the IP and rightfully so, you know, because the, the director for the department was available. And so I had everybody on the phone and the first that, you know, I'm listening about why the rationale of why they should proceed with the case and, um, you know, that the instruments are fine. We could just pick the bone off. And the comment was made, well, it's sterile bone. And that's when I just stopped and I said, we're not an FDA proof lab to do that. It is not sterile, it's a compromised pack. You need to stop and pull another set of instruments. It required them to kind of pull more instrument pans to kind of make up what they had sitting on the table. 
I said, it's gonna take a little bit longer. Your patient's already under anesthesia. Yes, that's a risk, but the risk is greater with the infection than it is anesthesia, right? Brings up a really good point, Jody. Um, I know in, in a lot of dental facilities, like you said, it is a very small facility and you may have one, two, maybe three dental assistants and a doctor. And you don't necessarily have that luxury of being able to call an IP and say, you know, this is happening, doctor wants to proceed with the case, but I don't think they should. You, you kind of are at the mercy of what your boss tells you to do. And so that, I think that's why it's really important for anyone that's setting up for any procedure to make sure you inspect your instruments mm -hmm. like before a doctor sits down. Be ready for them when they sit down. That way you're not opening it and going, oh no, this is dirty or, you know, it has a piece of bone in it or whatever. You should be able to inspect your instruments before that happens and go get more and be ready. So, and Sarah, I think you bring up a good point because we're talking a lot about visible signs that a, the sterilization has failed. And I think it's important to kind of like, you know, pedal back a little bit and talk about that sterilization is a really complex procedure, right? We have to remove all the gross debris and then we have to heat things and just putting it in the sterilizer is not enough, right? We have to understand how heavy the instruments are, how they're wrapped, um, how much steam is coming into the unit to know how long does it even take to make that item that's in there actually, how long is it taking to make it so hot and pressurized in that environment that all the organisms are dead. And so there's lots of factors that go with this. It's actually very complex. So um, for example, on your sterilizer, there's different settings, right? What we do for peel pouches is not the same as what we do for wrapped things. And that for the people on the call who are maybe not understanding why, they actually require a different length of time to become sterile. And so it's important when we talk about sterilization failures that, that there's nothing magic about that unit, right? It's not a magic box. I put things in and take it out and it's clean. As the user, you have to know what's happening, what the requirements are. It's even such that it's very uncommon for me to find in dental that the sterilizers have printers on them, right? That we, um, in the acute care environment, we would expect that that, print, that sterilizer can print out a tape that says, what time? did this sterilizer reach the right temperature? How many minutes did the load last at that high temperature and pressure that I can know, I can sign off and I can say, yes, this load met, did what I expected it to. So that, that's how complex sterilization really is. And we take it that serious. Um, and the indicators themselves are designed to help us. They're not perfect. Biological indicators are better, but chemical indicators are one level where you have an external indicator and an internal indicator, right? And so the external indicator would tell you, it looks like this piece of equipment went through the sterilizer, right? That, that's your external tape. But like Jody's talking about, when you open up the case, we're looking that the indicator inside also changed. Mm -hmm. It's critical. As an IP, I worked on a case one time where um, they had a cart of instruments waiting to go into the sterilizer. In acute care, you can imagine these are much bigger sterilizers. I know those aren't common in dental, but what was on the cart sat in front of the sterilizer long enough that the external indicators all changed. It was warm enough there that the external tapes changed, a shift changed, new people came on and they looked at those packs. It looks like they got sterilized and they went through. 
when some of those instruments reached the OR, when they opened them, they saw that the indicators inside had not changed. That's how we knew that there was a sterilization failure. I can't use these things because something's wrong. And so I think that that's a very important point of when we talk about just very basic functions of sterilization, that we talk about the importance of taking those steps because whoopsies happen, you know, accidents happen. That's why we have these multiple checkpoints. Um, so I think Jody's done a really good job of talking about how important the pre-cleaning is, right? That the sterilization can actually reach the organisms. They're not gonna get encapsulated in that crust, et cetera. Um, but uh, just even the basic equipment. And um, one of the things we were talking about before the call is those indicators. Um, I just talked about external indicators and internal indicators. And those are like chemical tapes that respond to time and temperature. So in dentistry, Kate, those, those indicators are actually built into our pouches. Yes. So you have one that's on, on the outside of the, the pouch part and one that's on the inside with the instruments. And those will change colors based on whatever brand you have. But it's important that you can recognize when that pouch has gone through the sterilizer. What color does it change from blue to pink or does it change from brown to black or you know whatever it is. You need to be able to train your staff to recognize that that has happened. Um, you know, and human error you brought up is a really common thing when it comes to sterilization processes. I was working in, um, in a clinic one time and just kind of like you said, shift change, right? Somebody came back from their lunch break and saw that the, the sterilizer had instruments in it and just assumed that they were run and took them out and put them all away. And they had not been processed in the sterilizer. Somebody was waiting to put like one last pouch in there to fill up the load or whatever. And, you know, two hours later, we grab a pack out of the drawer and it's not been sterilized. So, you know, being able to do multiple checks on those indicators, I think is really important. You know, when you, when your sterilizer is finished, did it change? Should I put these away? And then before you do your procedure, has this pouch gone through this process? Right, and in, in my world, Sarah, again, coming from, you know, a larger entity, the, the type of tapes and indicators we used almost never changed. You know, we've used the same type of indicators and Jody can probably attest to this, no pun intended. They have been around for a really long time that it's very standard. This is what that indicator looks like. So you brought up a really good practice point, Sarah, of if you have new indicators, everybody has to be educated about that. That's a stop. Hey guys, this changed. This is what sterile looks like. This is what unprocessed looked like. It, it's not fair to people to just change the packs and expect them to just see that they're different, right? Yeah, and um, for the listeners out there, you know, those, those indicators that are on pouches, built into the pouches, we all know what they look like, but you can get additional chemical indicators that are the little strips that Kate's talking about that you can throw into your loads in addition to the indicators that are on your pouches. So that's so just you're another cassettes. verification. If you're running those cassettes, instrument cassettes, right? You would have to put a chemical indicator in those, right? So with the cassettes, um, a lot of times we have like the, the tape that changes. That would be our indicator on the cassettes when you wrap it up in the blue wrap. So by the American national standard, we would like you have to have something on the outside and something on the inside just to stop that, um, that whoopsie we're talking about, that shift change mm -hmm. issue. And so I think that's an excellent point. Maybe we can do a key takeaway or something. The importance of if you're running cassettes, 
there has to be something inside um, to tell us if, if the inside got hot enough. And actually, depending on the cassette, I don't know how complex they are. If they have different levels, you actually have to put more than one in. Um, so I think that, that that would be something maybe we could talk about on a future segment. Um, the other part that we were talking about is, you know, um, Jody made an excellent point about the, the bone. Um, you know, that that bone's not sterile, that, that it doesn't work that way. We don't put it in the magic box and everything is made fine. Water, if water is inside the pack even, that water can take organisms from the outside of the pack inside. So I know that it's very common in practice, especially like in the summertime, when you have really hot things coming out of the sterilizer in an air conditioned office, wet packs, right? Just simple condensation becomes a huge challenge. And I think it's really important that we kind of like, you know, the point, like things that are wet are not sterile. And I think that's something that is a really important kind of a point to hone in on. Yeah. And wet packs are really common in dentistry and for a couple of different reasons. Um, you know, we have so much turnover, right? So we're consistently running these loads and we run out of time and we don't have time to let the sterilizer finish its full dry cycle, right? So you it, the door pops and you have to get another load in and you pull them out and the packs are still wet, which is not ideal, right? We don't want wet packs. Um, so with that, any other place in medicine, we would say you can't do that. Yeah. That the things that come out of the sterilizer are not sterile. If they didn't complete their whole cycle, we don't call these instruments clean. And so um, when we're running so back to back as an IP, you know, one of the first questions I ask people is, do you have what you need to do your job? And in that case, it sounds like we don't have enough sterilizers. We don't have enough instruments that we have to run them that fast. And it is the, the answer, and it's common, this kind of like hurry up and go, but it's not okay. And in no other medical environment do we allow people to do that is if it's not dry, if it doesn't go through the complete cycle, it's not called sterile. If we want it to be sterile, we got to go the whole road. There are a couple different ways to fix that, right, Kate? You can there get are. more instruments, right? Have more instruments that you can keep sterile and dry, or you can get another sterilizer mm -hmm. to be able to run two at the same time. Correct. And let them go through their full dry cycle. And many, many facilities do that with multiple sterilizers, right? We have and when you label things, you would label that, you know, it went through sterilizer one or sterilizer two, and it's ideal because then you can run those kind of in sequence, right? I can get load one going and I can, you know, be loading load two, load up load two. And by the time I'm done with that, I go back to my former. Most facilities um, that do sterilization outside of dentistry really have more than one sterilizer. Um, and the point you talked about where um, on the off chance that I have something that um, I need to run faster we have equipment for that, right? You guys have um, faster sterilizers. I only know the brand name and I don't wanna say it necessarily on the podcast, but we have smaller sterilizer units that can do like one thing if we need to run a particular piece of equipment more quickly. Yeah, and I know Jody was talking about this a little bit before the immediate use steam sterilization technique. Um, I, what I see a lot in dentistry though is in those, those smaller sterilizers that are kind of meant to be like a flash sterilization. They have a super short cycle with a really high heat. Um, you know, those would be your one-off like surgical instruments. We only have one in the office because we don't use it very often. Mm -hmm. What happens if I drop that on the floor? 
you know, now, now yeah. we're in a little bit of a crisis mode and we have to sterilize that. So you can put that in for immediate use, steam sterilization. That means you sterilize it and you're going to use it right now. Those cannot be stored in a drawer somewhere unwrapped or, you know, you can't take them out and sit it on a counter for the, your patient in two hours. That is not okay. Um, another thing about those really quick high heat cycles is you don't want to run hand pieces through those because that will mess with the internal mechanisms in your hand pieces and it will cause them to like crap out on you. Way you get to a really important point with that, the instructions for use. Yes. But most of the equipment you use in your environment is um, stainless steel, right? Instruments that we either put in peel packs or cassettes. There are different types of instruments, things like light sources, hand pieces. The instructions for use on sterilizing those things are different. Those are gonna be different types of cycles, different temperatures. Can they go through steam sterilization or are they more a different um, process? So um, it's really important, like, how would I know that? Um, you have to and look if your at office the, the, has questions about that stuff, you know, every manufacturer is going to be a little bit different, right? Pull out those instructions for use. If you're confused, call your dental rep. That is what their job is. They would love to bring you lunch and come in and talk about their handpiece and how to take care of it, right? You could do a lunch and learn and just get everybody trained on it. Well, and as Jody was referencing earlier in the conversation about if she knew today you know, um, if she could apply that to 20 years ago, how things would have been different. And uh, I can imagine the technology for sterilization equipment has uh, changed just a little bit over the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, there's, there's always new things, you know, coming up. Uh, so, you know, looking at the, the obsolescence of the equipment and looking at how all of that, that could be a whole separate uh, conversation. Another separate conversation that we can go into is um, any kind of like drill bits that go into bone. Can they be reused? That's the other thing that I had, I had to actually sit down with the sterile processing staff, go through the IFUs, call the reps, call the company and say, okay, this has been drilled into a bone. Can we use it again? Can we sterilize it? And then the other piece of that is implants. So if I have a screw or a plate that I screwed into bone, but I don't really necessarily as a practitioner like the way that it fits. So I want the next size and I take that screw or plate out. What does that mean for that screw and that plate? Can I reuse it again? I smell so another a, episode. On, you smell another implants. episode, yeah. Because yes. I mean, implants and drill bits, um, uh, that's that's a totally that's a totally different conversation to me. You could take up even like Kate said, burrs, burrs, and then you know, kind of helping with that, you know, drilling down into that bone and using a burr rather than just kind of taking like a rounder and kind of kind of crunching it off a little bit. You know, you want to make a nice indent in that bone rather than just a fragmented edges. So that's a whole different conversation. So and then what? I'm just going to throw this little. <laughs> little bit of trivia information out okay. there for all of you dental people that are listening. There are no diamond burrs that are FDA approved for multiple use. There you go. Okay. 
So if you are reusing diamond burrs for anything, doesn't matter what it is, they are not FDA approved for multiple use. They are all single use burrs. Yeah, that, it, that really gets back to some of the points we were talking about because burrs and for Dan and Margaret and Dr. Hankins who are on the call, like it's kind of like sandpaper, yes. right? Like that's what they look yes. like. So you can imagine, can I assure that I have cleaned all the debris off of this sandpaper? It's impossible. And that's part of the reason we can't reuse these things is there is no way to assure you have gotten every surface on that rough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's another episode I think we could do just just talking about burrs. Yes. Yeah. See, all of the excitement that you never knew you could have in infection <laughs> protection and control uh, is discussed here in this podcast. Yeah. So we have had a more rigorous conversation uh, on sterilization than I thought humanly possible in this brief <laughs> 30 minutes. Uh, we want to thank everybody that uh, contributed today and our special guest, Jody. Uh, it was an excellent conversation, and we look forward to our next endeavor. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP Infection Control Hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office.